The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Cocky Ride Home for Wednesday, October 27th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, it turns out that melting permafrost could unleash Cold War-era radioactive waste and millions of years old antibiotic-resistant bacteria. Cool, 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 cool. Plus, a look back at when picnicking in cemeteries was a common pastime, and not just for goths. And the annual drop of totally weird and probably disgusting candy cane flavors from Archie McPhee. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. So the whole point of the term permafrost is that the ground it refers to remains below freezing permanently, basically. But as we've seen from countless stories of near-perfectly preserved specimens being removed from the permafrost in places like Siberia as the permafrost begins to melt, it's not nearly so permanent as we used to think it was. So that's knock one on what us humans have done to permafrost thanks to all those greenhouse gases we keep pumping into the atmosphere. But it turns out there's another thing to be concerned about as that permafrost melts. It could lead to the release of even more greenhouse gases, plus unknown viruses, antibiotic-resistant bacteria, and even radioactive waste from Cold War-era nuclear reactors. Yeah, basically a greatest hits compilation of people's biggest fears all being unleashed together in a giant cloud as yet another thing that was supposed to be permanent has turned out to be a false promise. This news comes from research published this week by the European Space Agency in the journal Nature Climate Change. But first, just a little bit more on permafrost, quoting from Mike. While the ground only has to stay frozen for two years straight to get the label, much of it has been locked in a perpetual state of below freezing for up to a million years. Those freezing temperatures do more than just keep layers of Earth frozen, they also lock into place lots of the planet's history, some of which has never been exposed to or touched by humanity. End quote. And so, per the new research, the ESA explains, quote, Deep permafrost at a depth of more than three meters is one of the few environments on Earth that has not been exposed to modern antibiotics. More than 100 diverse microorganisms in Siberia's deep permafrost have been found to be antibiotic resistant. As the permafrost thaws, there is potential for these bacteria to mix with meltwater and create new antibiotic resistant strains. Another risk concerns byproducts of fossil fuels, which have been introduced into permafrost environments since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. The Arctic also contains natural metal deposits, including arsenic, mercury, and nickel, which have been mined for decades and have caused huge contamination from waste material across tens of millions of hectares. Now banned pollutants and chemicals such as the insecticide dichlorodiphenyl trichloroethane or DDT that were transported to the Arctic atmospherically and over time became trapped in permafrost are at risk of re-permeating the atmosphere. 
In addition, increased water flow means that pollutants can disperse widely, damaging animal and bird species as well as entering the human food chain. There's also greater scope for transportation of pollutants, bacteria, and viruses. More than 1,000 settlements, whether resource extraction, military, or scientific projects, have been created on permafrost during the last 70 years. That, coupled with the local populace, increases the likelihood of accidental contact or release. End quote. And as Gizmodo points out, quote, there's good reason to be wary of pathogens coming up from the ice. Over the summer, a team of scientists reported the discovery of 28 novel viruses in a glacier in Tibet. Besides their hardy profiles, these viruses and bacteria tend to be remote enough from humankind that our bodies may not be able to recognize them as threats. In March, researchers reported finding deep-sea bacteria that were unrecognizable to mammalian cells. That doesn't even get into what the thawing ground could do, and in some cases already is doing, to infrastructure. Last summer, thawing permafrost contributed to a massive diesel spill in the Russian Arctic. Research published in 2018 shows disintegrating ground could affect 4 million people in the Arctic as well as a third of all infrastructure in the region. End quote. And with the ESA estimating that two-thirds of all near-surface permafrost could be gone by 2100, these are huge threats we need to be aware of. Now, fortunately, the ESA has teamed up with NASA to form the Arctic Methane and Permafrost Challenge, which studies thawing permafrost and the potential consequences to arm decision-makers with the information to take action. As the study's lead author Kimberly Miner of the NASA Jet Propulsion Lab said in an ESA statement, quote, We have a very small understanding of what kind of extremophiles, microbes that live in lots of different conditions for a long time, have the potential to reemerge. These are microbes that have co-evolved with things like giant sloths or mammoths, and we have no idea what they could do when released into our ecosystems. It's important to understand the secondary and tertiary impacts of these large-scale Earth changes, such as permafrost thaw. While some of the hazards associated with the thaw of up to a million years of material have been captured, we are a long way from being able to model and predict exactly when and where they will happen. This research is critical. End quote. So, like, I don't totally mean to alarm you about Cold War-era radioactive waste and super bacteria from mammoths, and people are working on this, so there's definitely hope. But also, honestly, all I can say is, yikes. And now for a total 180, Seattle-based gift store Archie McPhee is back with their annual drop of weird candy cane flavors. This year's flavors are hot dog, sardine, and sour cream and onion. Yum. If you missed it when I covered the absurd candy cane line last year, basically Archie McPhee is a kind of joke shop with all kinds of weird products, from classics like rubber chickens to the more offbeat like wind-up pigeons, emergency goat sound effect machines, and squirrel feeders with a gnome head that make it look like the squirrel using it is a gnome. I also just spotted a Santa Centaur or Santar Christmas ornament that I need. But anyways, their candy cane line has been going strong for years, but really took off back in 2018 when a mom influencer shared their mac and cheese candy canes. And now, annual drops tend to sell out immediately, as the hot dog, sardine, and sour cream and onion candy canes did. Those are three separate flavors, by the way, in case it wasn't clear, because honestly, with this story, it probably wasn't. 
But if you really want one of those, you can enter your email to be notified if they restock, but it is unclear if they actually will, and if you'd get those in time for the holidays. But lots of their previous flavors are still in stock. You can get shiitake mushroom candy canes, hamdi canes, that's ham candy canes, the aforementioned mac and cheese candy canes, or kale candy canes. Although sadly, the pizza ones, bacon ones, and pickle ones are also sold out. Bummer. If you're someone who likes to throw gag gifts into a white elephant swap or something, I do seriously recommend Archie McPhee's. They're totally bonkers, but super fun and unique. When you think about someone hanging out in a cemetery just for fun and not there in mourning or visiting a gravesite, you might imagine, like, a group of goths engaging with the macabre, or maybe you just think it's a bit insensitive. Or at least maybe you did before the pandemic. Just anecdotally, it seems like a lot more people in cities started frequenting cemeteries as one of few open-air green spaces with enough acreage to properly distance from others. When we were still locking down more strictly, I spoke with numerous people who had started going for walks, jogs, or just sitting and having a coffee in cemeteries. I've often thought about going for a run in one of the ones near my house because it's the only large expanse of green space within my usual running radius, but even though it's technically allowed, some cemeteries do specifically outlaw recreationally running if you look on their websites, but I worry that there would be some individual mourners there who would take offense to the way that I'm using the site. But there are some people, both pre- and post-pandemic, who swear by cemeteries as a great site for runs. They're quiet, sparsely populated, and have a lot of great nature to enjoy. And while all that may sound a little grim or even reflective of some dystopian interpretation of urbanization and our detachment from nature, all of which may be true in some parts, I can tell you that it is not a new phenomenon at all. Well, alright, exercising in the cemetery might be new in the last decade or two, but hanging out in a cemetery in the same way that one might a public park is not new at all. In the 19th century, across urban areas in the U.S., going for a picnic at the local cemetery was an absolutely ordinary and popular pastime, in part because public parks, as we'd recognize them today, weren't really a thing. So, like for many of us now, especially during lockdown, if you wanted somewhere to get some fresh air and nature, you went to the cemetery. And in fact, the pandemic comparison is apt. Picnicking in cemeteries, according to a recent article from Atlas Obscura, really picked up during the height of yellow fever, cholera, and other epidemics. As I and others have shared many times before, this whole fresh air, ventilation, and distancing thing was not invented for COVID-19. It's been the recommendation for preventing the spread of disease for centuries. Though back in the 19th century U.S., it seems that some people additionally had a different relationship with death than many of us do today. With diseases and death so prevalent, families didn't go to the cemetery just for the lush nature and ease of distancing from others, but also to include their deceased loved ones in the day's activity, even if only in spirit. But there's another reason that this trend was even able to happen, the rural cemetery movement. Kicked off in the 18th century by architect Sir Eilington Wren, but not really taking hold until the 19th century, the idea was that overcrowded graveyards on the church grounds in the middle of town were no longer optimal places for people to mourn. 
In addition to overflowing, they were sites of grave digging and other unsavory activities. As, again, so many people died so early during the epidemics of the 19th century, there became a growing desire to have a place that was a bit more peaceful for one to mourn one's lost loved ones. Quoting Atlas Obscura, with names like Greenwood and Forest Lawn, graveyards came off as places of natural respite, not of decay and foreboding. Grassy lawns, flowering trees, and reflective ponds made them as much a place of repose for the living as for the dead. The skulls and crossbones of 16th century grave markers were replaced by more artistic interpretive symbols like lambs, lilies, and open books. And unlike the restrictive religious burying grounds in these new rural cemeteries of the 19th century, municipally operated and religiously unaffiliated, anyone was welcome to be interred. End quote. And this is something I was reminded of when I recently went on a nighttime kerosene lantern tour of the Sleepy Hollow Cemetery in New York. The 90-acre cemetery is the final resting place of Sleepy Hollow author Washington Irving, as well as a boatload of notable folks like the Rockefellers, the Astors, and the Carnegies. Sleepy Hollow Cemetery was built in 1845 adjacent to the burying ground of the Old Dutch Church, the very same that the Headless Horseman is said to haunt in Irving's Legend of Sleepy Hollow novella. And it was intentionally built as part of the rural cemetery movement, giving the residents of Terrytown a beautiful park of rolling hills in which to mourn or simply spend the day. As Atlas Obscura points out, in other cultures around the world, picnicking among the dead or dining with ancestors is common. And still today, some cemeteries in America, like the Sleepy Hollow one, host all manner of events to share the history of the site or simply harken back to the days of more recreational cemeteries. That said, a lot of cemeteries these days do restrict the bringing of food on the premises, so check the rules on the website before you plan an elaborate potluck picnic with your friends. Alright, so I kind of love this. Timothy Chalamet is the star of the new Dune movie, but in another timeline, he could have been famous instead for his YouTube gaming videos. Earlier this year, discerning fans discovered Chalamet's old YouTube channel from when he was 15, in which he made a series of modded Xbox 360 controllers for a small following. He was basically just painting them based on requests from viewers and then selling them for $10 to people he knew from gaming communities. Fans pulled out all kinds of detective work to verify this was actually Chalamet since he never showed his face in the videos and only identified himself as modded controller 360. And then during a press interview for Dune recently, he admitted that the channel was indeed his. I just think that it's cool or weird something how we're gonna keep seeing this. With the generation that grew up not just with access to the internet, but with easy access to creating content themselves, and especially as a lot of folks don't seem great at understanding longevity of content online or keeping track of logins to delete content if they want to one day, we're gonna continue seeing all of the strange preteen experiments from people who are otherwise famous to us for more serious things, like how Little Nas X anonymously ran a pretty popular Nicki Minaj fan account before he went viral on TikTok for Old Town Road. So just pro tip, if you're aspiring to any kind of pursuit in which you may become a public figure, make sure you wipe the internet of anything you might be embarrassed by, or just be prepared to own it, because people will find it. 
But that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow.